this interception. Oh, don't take her up like that. Hello, and welcome to the How to Play Quidditch podcast. I'm your host, as always, Alejo Enriquez. I'm very excited today to record an episode on the keeper position. The keeper position is very similar to the chaser position in most respects, and I've already recorded an episode on the chaser position, but I do have a few things I want to get into about playing keeper. Um, First off, we should mention mechanically that the keeper position is identical to the chaser with several exceptions. First of all, the keeper is allowed to put their hand through the hoops to block shots. This is called goaltending and only legal for the keeper. Secondly, when the Quaffle is scored, Quaffle goes through hoops. The Quaffle is then dead until it's returned to the possession of the team that was just scored upon as the keeper. That means that the key, for both of those reasons, the keeper is usually positioned at the hoops first so that they can play defense more effectively and second so that they can make the ball live as quickly as possible. For these reasons, uh, teams usually put their most experienced athletes at the keeper position, especially their taller, uh, often male, but not always male players, at the keeper position because the keeper is the one, by definition, who's going to initiate the drive. Now, they don't have to. They can hand the ball off to someone else to be their prime ball carrier. But if you're trying to capitalize on a momentary opportunity for a fast break, it helps to have your keeper be the individual who is able to make that read. And so most teams will put their most dominant physical athletes at the keeper position. So we're going to talk a little bit today about what goes into playing that position specifically. To join me in this discussion, I'm very excited to have someone who is a graduate from Concordia University, Chicago. He is a four-year player for Chicago Quidditch and a one-year player for Indianapolis Intensity. He is Scott Ryan Jr. I will find my way. I can go the distance. I'll be there someday. If I can be strong. Thanks for uh, coming on the show, Scott. I appreciate it. Hey, man, it's a privilege to be here. Thank you for taking the time. Well, you're welcome, and thank you. Uh, so, uh, you may be aware I like to uh, start off the, the interview by asking some get-to-know-you questions. So, my first question for you, um, relating to Quidditch, what is a moment of for you of personal triumph in Quidditch? Personal triumph? Uh... Man, it was it was probably like one of my first experiences with Quidditch. We used to have a tournament called um it had two names. It was the Midwest Warm Up, but then it was also in conjunction with a Warriors and Wizards tournament, kind of like a like a Harry Potterish kind of like magic type of like gathering where you had this festival in Wisconsin and then you had the tournament also a part of it. So we were doing our own thing. And then the festival was nearby and like kids were dressing up, doing the whole Harry Potter thing. And then you can watch Quidditch. It's like a decent crowd. Yeah. Like eight to 12 teams every year is pretty, pretty good crowd, like wow. within the Midwest region. And one of my first experiences was with, with my team, the Chicago United team. And I, I was, and we needed a seeker sub. And I was like, sure, I'll do it. Never played seeker that was like my first time playing Quidditch at all. <laughs> and I caught the snitch in 
I don't know. I guess at the time it was kind of like a big deal to catch a snitch, like almost immediately. Maybe it was just a really bad snitch, but like it took me about like seven seconds to catch a snitch. Oh, wow. I felt like Harry Potter. I felt like I just caught the snitch. Gryffindor wins. I don't think we won. I think it was just to like move on and get to the next game. <laughs> I can't really remember. But you, you know how that situation goes. You catch the just end it and move on yeah um, but yeah that that felt really cool like I felt like I was in the movie in the books when Harry catches a snitch with his mouth and <laughs> it was awesome that's great uh, that's, a, that's amazing um what is that that is that festival still happening or you said it, it doesn't anymore unfortunately it is no longer um Oh, so this was the first year it was no longer a thing. Oh, that's too bad. Maybe we'll have to bring it back someday. That sounds awesome. <laughs> and it's definitely was a good way of getting a lot of the Midwest teams together just before regionals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, that that's a great story. All right, so for next question for you, what's the most epic Quidditch moment you've ever borne witness to, meaning you weren't playing but you just saw you were spectating or refing and you just saw something totally epic. Uh, it was probably this um Midwest Regionals. I drove to Omaha from Chicago and um in, in the Midwest there's been a lot of um discussion about the changes in hierarchy, who looks good and like all the usual regional talks, right? And this this year and it showed, hey, this was a year that Crane looking really good. And um, I think it was, uh, I think it was a Creighton catch versus the Jayhawks, which is Kansas. Oh yeah, Kansas Quidditch, a perennial powerhouse. They definitely still are. To have a team with 10, 11 rookie, like first years on their team and still do as well as they did, they they played phenomenally. Um, However, having Crane have the the success and their rookies as well that they did, I the I took a photo of it. It was the first overtime of that regionals. Um, I I think it was number forty eight. Joe Gullet caught the snitch to to win it for Crane or send it into overtime. But just like to be that close to a snitch catch that he's has huge implications on the games and then the going to to the finals like like that you live for those moments it uh, it's like there's so many of those moments that you can just kind of tune in like i know exactly what you're feeling because like not too many sports have that moment yeah that's that's why we play the sports right that's why we still play the games that's why we don't just play them on paper right yeah Quit is great. Quit your day job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but luckily for me, my day job sort of involves Quidditch. So um, I, I'm the advisor for the Quidditch club on campus. So <laughs> You get to inspire the youth of tomorrow. Yes, I do. Uh, <laughs> I also terrify them with my uh, because I'm a biology professor. So, But yes, the Quidditch part is the more uplifting part. All right. And so, a uh, third question for you: Who's someone in the Quidditch community um, who you look up to? Like, like in height, there, there's a few folks that are like six five. 
usually it's interpreted more metaphorically that you uh, look up to them as uh, as in they uh, their effect on the world around them and around you towers over over you oh man there's there's quite a few and like a lot of the reason i've been so invested in quidditch more was like a lot of my experience with the indianapolis intensity team this summer um my first year playing mlq um first time going to indiana for any reason um um, there's there is just so much that went into that summer and so much taken away that like i already enjoyed quidditch and like I was the I was my team's president prior to that season. Um, I'm the current VP now, but that summer gave me so much more from Quidge that I just wanted to do more. And I think I gotta give a shout out to Nathan Digman, who is the current coach for Boom Train, and he was the coach for Indianapolis Intensity. You you want to talk about a man with a vision, a man with no excuses, a man that is. A hundred percent knows to the grindstone quidditch on and off pitch. You you look at Nathan Digman and like like recruiting me for Indy. We we kept talking about like the financial costs, my injuries, like what what's my role, what's the cut. Like he's dialed in a hundred percent when it's about quidditch, and not to say he doesn't got his own life outside of quidditch. He's definitely very invested in his career but like that dude has so much heart it was like i want that i want to strive to be that i want to be that for quidditch oh, that's powerful thank you um has he been on intensity a long time do you know i think diggy has been involved in tennessee at least three to four years um i didn't know it at the time but my first year for chicago united in 2016 he was either a junior or senior at Marquette in Wisconsin. Mm. We that that's something funny that I've been finding out with Quidditch. Like you take a look at some old fo- photos and people who you play with now. Like, oh, sh- we played against each other. Look at that. <laughs> and that that was when like club and college played at regionals too. Oh my gosh, yes, that's uh, it's not that long ago. Man, that's definitely uh, definitely been a big change ever since that splits happened. Yeah, no, I was just asking partially because uh, I worked um, for MLQ its very first year I was on the stats team, and I remember looking at intensity and seeing how people really didn't expect intensity to be a powerhouse in the North Division, but it has been every single year. Every single year it's either won the division or threatened to. It's always come down to the end. It's definitely a strength of the pack mentality over there in Indy. Yeah, they play and- really good team ball, basically. Yeah. Diggy has a lot of influence in that. And then we, as a team, we bought into it. Mm, yeah. Wow. That's, that's, uh, it's good to know. Get one of those names out there that maybe doesn't get out there enough. Nathan Digman, ar- architect I, I of Indianapolis intensity. <laughs> I am shocked that this name is not out there more. Well, I, I guess I operate, I mean, I'm down here in the Southwest. Dolphin, we don't, yeah. we hear, we don't hear too many names outside of, Basically, the names you know in Texas are all the other Texas players. And then um, you get to hear the top line of the, the Northeast contenders because, you know, they're the ones that are standing there at the end. Usually, um, you know, the Jake Archibalds and Harry Greenhouses and Max Havlins and stuff. But uh, 
Yeah, it's good to get more names out there. Which is why you and I need to have a conversation about podcasting after this so I can figure that out. (laughs) Sounds good. Always happy to help. You're a good person. Don't stop being you. I, uh, lucky for all of us, I guess I'm kind of stuck being me. <laughs> Got jokes. <laughs> Got facts. <laughs> all right. All right. So, um, I wanted to talk today, um, with you, Scotty, about the keeper position. It's, uh, obviously a really important position in the sport of Quidditch, and it's one I haven't recorded any podcasts over yet. Uh, I haven't um, recorded now. I've, I've had a couple of people on who have played keeper, but we haven't talked the specifics about keeper. So um, I think that maybe the most likely person to play keeper usually comes over from chaser. They've played chaser first. Um, so let's, for the moment, let's start out assuming someone who's listening to this is wants to play keeper, but they have they've played chaser only and they understand how the sport works, but talk maybe a little bit first. Cause I know you've played keeper for the Indianapolis intensity. And uh, do you also play keeper for, um, for Chicago United right now? I'm maybe like on the third string, but I've, I've played it enough in previous seasons. So I'm, I'm quite familiar with the position. Great. So um, I'm going to open it up to you first. Let's, let's assume that the person who's, who we're speaking to our target audience is someone who, has played chaser. And so then it's like, all right, well, we need a keeper. Our keeper just graduated or moved away, or I just want to add that element to my game. Um, what uh, Talk about a couple of the things that are most salient about when you first step in at keeper, what the big differences are that may not be obvious, aside from the color of the headband. <laughs> well, you're, you're definitely not wrong. You got to got to go to the basics first and first is you got to get a green headband (laughs) make sure that happens first but um there are some unique challenges and expectations of the keeper position that you're not going to see at the chaser position and one of the first thing that comes to mind is the level of field awareness has to be that much higher at the keeper position um, unless you're, for whatever reason, putting a chaser or beater behind the keeper, I can't say I've seen that happen too much, if at all, outside of like a chaser playing man defense and the down, the, the offense is down chaser. The keeper is your last line of defense. They're, you, they're traditionally guarding the hoops, but it's more than that. You need to be able to, to see everything. You got to be using your peripherals. You need to see, okay, you got three up top, one down low. Okay, now there's there's one on the side. You're flooding the left. You're seeing everything, and you're also predicting. We kind of talked about that a little bit earlier about, like, you, you need to have some idea of what could happen um, before it happens. And that's where the field awareness comes into play. If they're flooding the left side, what does that mean? What does that do for them offensively? How are they trying to score? If you if you can figure that out, that tells you how to set up defensively. And you need to give that out. Yes, it's great if a chaser can point that out. But like, as the keeper, you can see where everyone needs to be. And if you know how your defense is set up, you know how they're going to attack. It makes it easier for you to know how to cover the hoops. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, that uh, that definitely. Um, I I would think that that the value usually of a team having a a non-playing coach as they're as they're watching the game unfold, they might be able to also be able to pick apart the offense, but uh, see diagnose it. But I definitely, you know, they're not on the field like the keeper is. So I think that definitely does mean that a good keeper is going to be able to carry that load, that communication load, and and get everyone into position. Um, uh, is there any other, uh, kind of main things you want to mention about, uh, what, what, uh, defensively, at least first off, what the keeper has to do different from a chaser? I think defensively for a keeper, you need to constantly be vigilant. I don't know if that kind of is the same of, um, field awareness, but like, you always got to be on your toes, like. I know there's still some chasers that just kind of sit in the zone and just kind of chill, but a game can change in a moment's notice. You need to be, you need to be ready to bounce on a quaffle. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of offenses that are trying to run um, a chaser near to hoops. And then you got the offense that drives, kicks it out. Like you got to be able to make quick decisions at a moment's notice, do you do you press up on the drive or do you go to cover the pass? Um, it does kind of tie, tie into the field awareness and the defense. Um, you're you're almost acting like a free safety in football. Your your mm. Eric Reeds, your um, crap, your Earl Thomases, your Eric Berries. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's so many times an offense gets flustered at the top of the key and they just make a crazy pass like behind the hoops or deep a keeper that's paying attention to that pass coming you pick that off and you're now in transition offense with bludger control maybe you're not running like running full speed but like hey i got i got the quaffle now because i saw the pass coming and now you set up your offense and like part of the keeper's communication is like, hey, like I got it. Like let's let's move, let's go. Like everyone's got to. The keeper sees that first, then they all respond to what the keeper is seeing and saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely takes some experience to see move the head. That was actually also I think one of the things that I think it was when I interviewed Michael Duquette. He basically said the same thing for the beater position that to to really play it most effectively it's a lot like billiards like pool like you have to be able to see multiple moves ahead you can't just take the best shot and not leave your and if that best shot if you miss it it leaves you with nothing you you put your team in a bad place i think it makes sense for the keeper to be the same way i absolutely agree you need to have backup plans for your backup plans you there there should be no reason that you don't have an answer or i don't know what i could have done the keeper needs to be the person that can see that and communicate that mm-hmm. and uh um ooh choppy feet choppy feet talk to me about choppy, choppy. feet choppy feet so uh, chasers are notorious for running at other chasers. And then all you have to do is si- sidestep to the left. Mm-hmm. And then you're you're fine. You don't have to worry about them playing defense on you. Um, I guess this can apply to chasers too. But keepers, when 
the quaffle is near your hoops, you need to create a strong base, a strong foundation to not people get around you or go through you. And you mm-hmm. see it in basketball. You'll see it in football. If you're going to start running, you're pumping your arms, but you also got to pump your arms and break. You got to set your feet. You can't just run through people, run past people, and then try and do like a, a hopeless one-arm tackle. And that's not going to do anything for you. You got to set your feet before you make contact and get in their way. Mm-hmm. Um, like keep, keepers have an opportunity to like – like, so what that does for you, it sets you up in a position to wrap up. And if you can wrap them up near the goal, I promise you nine times out of 10, if you're being conservative with your beater and one beater is near the hoops with a bludger, there's a tap out because you got them wrapped up. Mm-hmm. But if if you're just going to sit there and just try and lunge yourself at them with your head down and hope for the best, that's, that's not a smart defense to play. You got to, you got to give them absolutely like no outlets because you are the last line of defense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, and the, the, the chopping feet, I think maybe to describe it for those who haven't seen it, don't watch enough sports. Basically, the idea is you shorten your stride length. So rather than taking long steps, you take multiple short steps, and that lets you kind of change your direction as needed keeps your weight kind of centered so that it can go in any direction. You don't have as much forward momentum anymore, but you don't need forward momentum because you're going to, if you commit that momentum, the opponent will be able to react to it and go away from it around it. So basically, basically treating forward momentum as the problem, not the solution. So yeah, that's definitely a good one. I remember... I was going to say, I remember years ago, this is so long ago, I should have written it down because I've half forgotten it, but I was having a conversation with um, with uh, Miles back in California, and I, I don't think I was really participant in the conversation I was listening, but he said that basically as a keeper, like there's three things you can do defensively, but you can never do all three at once. You can only kind of do two at, at a time at most. And I think it was that you can block the shot that you can make the tackle and you can like prevent a pass. Like, I don't know if, if that lines up with your experience, but it kind of, I, I definitely been my experience that if I set myself up to block a shot, I'll block the shot if they make it. But then if they instead make a pass or try and run me over, like if they try and run me over, then I can get low. But then once as a keeper, once you get really low, if the person is facing the hoops, not at an angle to it, you might understand then you can't also block that shot. What would you, what would, you, what would your reaction be to, to that sort of analysis of the keeper position? Say that one more time. You can block the shot, block the pass. And what was the third or, one? Or stop them, stop the momentum, actually tackle them, like get low and tackle them. Cause especially the, especially the idea that to block a shot, you have to kind of jump up, stretch up for it. And in order to, to stop their momentum and make the tackle, you, your hips have to be lower than theirs. You have to drive your legs. So would you say that that's accurate? Maybe that that that, that quick decision-making maybe is because you, you're some, you've been put in a bad position. And if someone is eight feet from the hoops, and by definition, you're going to have to react to that. I don't think... Um... You said this person's miles in California? Yeah. 
I, I think there definitely is some truth to being able to do all three at once. I think there is a hierarchy to it though. And mm-hmm. like what, and what you would want to do for specific scenarios. So like I I'd give the example of if you're in a two on one situation, a fast break um, and you're your keeper by yourself by the hoops, I'm confronting the quaffle carrier. Um, maybe not right when they cross midline, but like as they're getting closer, like you you need to move up on that. Um, you it also helps to know if you know who you're going up against. Is this a guy that likes to pump fake a lot? Hmm. Is this a guy that looks for the pass often? Is this a guy that could care less about passing? Is going to drive? If you know how they're going to play, going earlier to anticipation, it gives you a higher probability to make a play. If it's a guy that I know can't pass worth a damn and he's just going to drive, I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to confront him. I'm not going to let him get close to hoops. I'd rather take a chance on them making a pass that they don't make too often mm-hmm. and making contact and slowing them down. Um, if it's a, if it's a pass heavy kind of quaffle handler, maybe I, maybe I make contact, but I don't wrap up right away. I try and, um, the Saints just did this. Um, if, if you're watching the game yesterday, um, um, playing the Falcons last night during Thanksgiving. Um, it was one of their rookie defensive linemen, mm-hmm. and they were in like a five, six-man set at the line. Matt Ryan draws back the pass. He looks for Devontae Freeman just for like a quick curl route. The, the lineman did not charge Matt Ryan right away. He was waiting. He was seeing what Matt was going to do. He didn't apply pressure up the middle. He sat and chilled. Matt tried to throw the quaffle to the Fontenay Freeman, who's right in the middle. That rookie lineman picked it off with one hand because he, he's looking at Matt's eyes. He's seeing what, what's going to happen. Matt is always a pass-first kind of quarterback. Yeah, um, He's not a mobile quarterback. He, he is tall. He's got, like, multiple years of throwing 300-yard games. If you know a guy like Matt Ryan, he's not going to – he's not a Lamar Jackson that's going to run first. So – and you got other people applying pressure. Hey, I'm going to sit back, take a shot. Okay, he's going to try and hit Devontae Freeman up the middle. No, I'm going to use my big-ass arm, and I'm going to catch the ball. And then he runs down the sideline and stiffs arm him for good measure, um, <laughs> getting good yards, like adding insult to injury. It was you, – you love to see the linemen make plays like that. It was beautiful. I mean, I'm a Falcons fan, but, like, that was just an awesome play for the Saints. <laughs> What's a Falcons fan doing up in Chicago? Are you from Atlanta area originally? No, I just like the color red. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> going back to the hierarchy, mm-hmm. if you know how your your opponent's going to play, you do yourself that much better as a keeper. And that's, like, you don't even have to do that much homework. Like, there's still a lot of driving type of offenses. You're, I, you're seeing it more where there's driving in and kick out the pass, but there's still a lot of teams that are just use your bleeders, use your bludgers, and then drive, and then, like, that's the look. Yeah. So if I'm a young keeper trying to take advantage right now, like, I, I'd keep that in mind watching game film. Yeah, that definitely – I can see that definitely as a 
as far as an initial approach to the game, you always want to, yes, film study is always going to help you. And just kind of, and even over the course of the game, reading the tendencies. Um, I think, though, that the other piece that from that conversation that I, that I took from it was that um, the keeper's almost always the last person, the last defender who gets beat every time there's a score. Like, you're the first you get past the chaser or the beater, and then you get past the keeper. And you score. So I think maybe another piece um, that I'm curious to hear your perspective on is the mental toughness required to play keeper. I think a lot of mental toughness falls on the keeper, specifically with, like, at least the teams that I've played with, the keeper is tasked with the alignment and assignments mm-hmm. of their teams. It goes back to earlier with the communication and seeing the field and setting up your defense. Yeah. You can definitely get a beater to do that. You can definitely get a chaser to do that. But again, keepers got the eyes. We you'll like right now the way to score it is the keeper is back there seeing everything. And the keeper should be the one saying, Hey, we are in this formation. This is where you need to be. This is where you're going after you get beat. This is what type of offense they're running. This is how our alignment needs to be. Like down to the littlest detail. It it could take a chaser out of position from being where they need to be to create a quaffle turnover, to get bludger control, to, to an easy bucket for the other team to, you know, it was a hard bucket. They got it, but we got bludger control out of it. You need to know all of that all at once while paying attention to the game at hand. There's, there's been a few times when I'm so wrapped up in the, the the thought process, like, okay, this person needs to be there, but they're not there. Wait, what do I need to say now? Oh, wait, they just scored. Well, maybe I should have paid attention to that part. Um, it, it can be challenging. And, um, you, but being, being the keeper, you got to have a short term memory. Yes. Um, like any, any athlete, like that's cliche saying just, you got to forget it. You got to move on. Next next play mentality. Yeah. And um, the way you can do that and make it easier for yourself is to create good habits, good repetition, and good, like, like practices. Not just practicing. Good practicing before game day. Um, like, I remember running track and field back in college. And, like, baseball players do this, too. You ever watch baseball? They have a ritual when they go up to the plate mm-hmm. track and field runners, they have a ritual before they get into the blocks. And then you hear the gun set, boom, all that fun stuff. You it's gotta be a, a habit that you create for yourself. Like, okay, we're in this, I'm moving to this. The more you practice it, the more repetition you do mentally. It's, it's just like going to the gym or going for a 5k. You practice it repetition. It becomes less exhausting just because you've rehearsed it. You've done it so much. Um, if you ever watch football, Deshaun Watson, to ask him how to break down defenses, he's done his homework so much in those like after game um, press conferences. It's just like anything else in life that you're passionate about, care about, or you invest time in. The ment- there's always going to be a mental challenge, and especially for an athlete, you just got you just got to do your homework. You got to watch game film. You got to practice. You got to ask questions. You got to fail. Yeah. You yeah. got to fail a lot to see what you did wrong. You're, you're not going to learn anything from your successes. 
you're going to learn from the times you fucked up and then fix it. That's true. You have to have a healthy relationship with failure in order to be successful in, in anything. That's a great way of phrasing it. Yeah. Because failure for some folks isn't their their best friend, but you yeah. can have a healthy relationship with failure. Yeah. I actually, in the uh, in the assistant referee textbook that I wrote, I the last one of the last portions is on tilt, which is basically when things start going wrong and then they get worse and worse. It's I think it's a originally like a gambling term when you're on tilt and you start like you're playing poker and you start like the other other people get in your heads and you start losing and losing more. Um, I think I, was, I put something in there about how in order the one of the best ways to avoid going on tilt is to have a healthy relationship with you know with with, with the concept of the game itself as, as an imperfect entity and yourself as an imperfect entity and to to make peace with that you know because when you have expectations and the, ultimately the model inside you is you know, I have to meet these expectations, or I'm, or I'm a failure. It's a re- every time it's a referendum on you. Sooner or later, that referendum will inevitably come up the wrong way, and then you're, it's going to spiral from there. So, yeah, that's definitely that. That mental toughness, I think, is a lot of it is get scored on. Don't worry about it. You know, that doesn't mean you f- you're a failure. Even if you failed, even if it was your fault, it doesn't mean you're a failure. You're a failure if you can let it happen over and over. But even if you do let it happen over and over, it doesn't mean you are, a, as an individual, a failure. You have to find the explanation that you're tired or these people are in your head or your game plan that you thought you were going to follow isn't working. It's time to rip it up and build a new one. That Those are all difficult to do. All those realizations are challenging. And so I, I definitely think that having a, a keeper with the mental stamina to to get scored on and everyone's looking at you as you get score, as you get dunked on, and then uh, has to be able to come back and play to swell the next the next set. Uh, that that part's never fun. It's <laughs> it's almost humanizing. Uh, I can't say it's happened to me too much, but it's like, well, this sucks. Oh wait, we're still playing. I got yeah, some offense. You can't take 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 one second. That's it. It's all you get. One second. Okay, now back at it. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's all you need. Like that sucks. Let's move on. You know, uh, I was going to say there's a practice that I do. I'd like to get, I'm interested to hear your opinion on it. Um, one of the practices we do at Victoria Quidditch, um, we'll have a keeper at the hoops and they'll have two chasers and they line up maybe about where mid pitch is, but then there's someone off field who starts a countdown. They start usually from seven. Um, you can start from any number and they literally just go seven six fine you have to score before zero or it's a, or it's a turnover to model a beater being out of the play for seven seconds and and what i found is that uh the time pressure it, it is true in quidditch especially but really in in life the time pressure often makes fools of us that when you start rushing is when you start making mistakes it, it simulates time pressure really well and and it being able to play through that time pressure and make a good pass when you're on the run, when your target's on the run that you're trying to pass to, um, you know, that that's not trivial. And so we always want to practice what we want to play because that's basically what's going to happen in transition. You have a, a lane and if someone moves into it, then someone's open because you're all just running but if you overshoot them, that's the one thing you can't do. You can't overshoot them, and that's a turnover. Like, you have to make the drive or make the pass. You know, you got to make, even though there's a time pressure, um, 
but then of course the keeper once 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 my team once my players start getting it the the keeper starts losing every time they start getting scored on regularly like 10 times in a row so i'm curious to hear if you have any initial thoughts on this if you've done a drill like this and if not not what you think of it because that's kind of my goal is to build that uh, mental awareness and mental toughness in in our, our keeper and in the obviously in the chasers as well so give me the layout again. What's the alignment? Who's involved? And what's the time frame again? So you got two chasers. Got- There's two chasers kind of One- split, out, split out wide from each other at mid-pitch or so. And then a keeper at the hoops. Whoops, sorry, what was that? It's two on one? Yep, it's a two on one. So the keeper should not have an expectation to win necessarily. If they do, that's great. But you know that that happened because the chasers made a mistake of some kind. And Most definitely, in a two-on-one with a key, keeper being the only defense, the chasers have a high probability if if they know what they're doing and know how to handle it to score. Right, but that's, then that's you, the ideal transition. You add a seven-second countdown so that the chasers feel a time pressure. So there's a little fairness on the on the keeper's side. Mm. A little. I don't bit. know how I feel about that seven seconds. What's the what's the purpose of the seven seconds? What's the intent? The intent is so that um, so that that people feel a time pressure. That they they need to still be able to to make the correct moves and play correctly when their mind is on two things at the same time, or alternatively to help them limit or shut out that time pressure while still being aware of it. Because if it reaches mm. zero, it's a turnover. Okay. I, I definitely see what you're saying about multitasking on, on different things. I just don't know how I feel about it being a, a time, um, timing being that other thing that they have to focus on. Um, I like the drill itself, though. Um, like, that's a very classic, like, transition type of um, play yeah. that – Chasers nine times out of ten should not mess up. Like th- that's where you start two on one, and then you build from there. Yeah, I, I'm I'm trying to think if I would do something different besides adding a timeline. Um, hmm. The other thing you can do is you can have a beater at the hoops who's empty-handed. And then after so many seconds, you roll the bludger to them, which is simulates having your empty-handed beater at the hoops and the other one going to, with a raised fist to collect the third bludger and throw it back to them. So that also Ooh, gives like you a, you, you all, we don't always have the numbers to do it that way. Um, but, uh, but that's one thing where, again, the same way, you know you have a very limited amount of time to score before a beater comes into the play. And, uh, you know, bas- we, we literally normally don't have the, 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 the manpower to to run the drill that way but when we do and we often have a lot of chasers when we have mostly chasers that's how we do it but if you have beaters as well you want to get them training that's how you can do that as well i here here's gonna be my my two cents on it and i'm not gonna say take away the time clock just because i can't think of a a second thing to add Mm -hmm. i would run it the same way without a time clock if anything i would just add um what can we we've done this in football we've did it in um other practices where 
you have this rotation with the two chasers, a keeper, right? Yeah. Um, one's the passing and then one's the driving. Yeah. You put one guy on defense to just kind of like just be in the way for like three to five seconds. Um, it, it is as it sounds. You're playing man defense. There, You got one person to be in front of you. Um, at, at some point in time, you're going to get by them. You're just getting used to having contact in front of you. Hmm. And then, and then you drive, and then then you make a decision on okay, is the keeper going to press up on me, or am I making that pass? I I think that's how um, I would throw another spin on your drill there if you wanted to throw in something second, because a lot of folks don't like contact, um, mm. and it it can be tough to make a pass after just fighting off some contact and staying focused on that. And if and I'm sure you do this already, or um, if not, I, I'd encourage it. Change sides. Yeah, like drive, yeah, drive from yeah, the opposite. Side. Yeah, because I'm left-handed, so it's easier for me to drive a certain way versus uh, the right-handed folks. Yeah, different. Yeah, lefty. Yeah, so the the strong side of the field is opposite for you than for other people. It's easier for you to run clockwise instead of counterclockwise no take your word for it on that well <laughs> have a in front of me <laughs> clock no <laughs> I, have these clock. Days. I like i i still i have a clock it's one of those circular things with hands i just don't have one in the room that i'm in so um that actually transitions nicely into something else i was going to talk about on offense as a ball handler my experience has been that when you have the ball in in your dominant hand, it's easier to throw the ball in uh, across your body. So, for example, if I'm right-handed, it's easier for me to throw to my left than to my right. Mm-hmm. So that means that if I want to run around the hoops and still have a shot or a pass available to me, I should run in a as a right-handed person. I should run counterclockwise, meaning the hoops are on my left as I run. Yeah so that I have the shot available to me because I've practiced that. I've actually run across the hoops and shot. Like a lot of times there was no one else at practice. I would just set up the hoops and shoot for a half hour, um, which means I'm much, much better shooting now than I used to be. Shooters got to shoot. Yep. Um, but those the shot can also be a pass. It's uh, simply a matter of what your target is. The important thing is to just get your body mechanics consistent. Um but uh, uh, that's one thing that I don't know if you wanted to expand on running right-handed versus left-handed. Is there, you know, uh, is the offense going to work different with you in versus a right-handed keeper if you're the ball handler? I think if you're the ball handler, you just need to not suck and adapt. You're 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 going to see this a lot. You're going to see a lot of right-handed quaffle handlers keep it in their right hand, and what are they going to do? They're going to drive the same way that people do it. You see it in basketball all the time. If they favor a certain hand, are going to go that way. Mm. But, like, take a look at all the good basketball players now that um, I was named one, LeBron James. Um, he can do it with his left and his right hand. Mm. I'm not saying you need to be good at shooting with both hands, but I'm just saying – if you want to be less predictable as a ball carrier, you yeah. got to be able to carry the ball in both hands. As a running back in football, 
they always taught you to carry the ball on the outside of your body closest to the sideline. Yeah. Why? Because you got people coming at you from the inside of the field that are going to try and strip you. Is it easier to get stripped if the ball is on the inside of your arm where they're closer? Or if you have a sideline protecting you and you got the ball on the outside? That I don't know. I feel like that's pretty self-explanatory for a qualified carrier. But if you've never played other sports where you've had to carry a ball and haven't had the predictability or um, like thought process of, oh, right-handed people go this way a lot, then maybe it's not as um, in your forefront foresight. Words are hard. <laughs> English. English is tricky, as we we talked about off camera. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I actually have practiced carrying left and right-handed. And also, because I'm right-handed, my go-to move is to tuck the ball in the, my left elbow and hold the broom with that same left arm so that I have a free right hand to, to stiff arm. But then I can only really run to my left making this move. So I've now also practiced holding the ball in my right hand, tucking it into my right arm and my right elbow, and then switching my broom to my right hand and now using my left hand to deflect. So now I have uh, a stiff arm to drive to the left or to the right. Are you still able to run doing that? Yes. Huh. I got to see this more. Maybe I haven't been paying attention to seeing other chases. Yet. This just sounds really uncomfortable. Really? I mean, you have to remember same, how I've same room. there have been a lot of practices where no one else is there except me and the hoops and a broom and a ball and a black belt and Shotokan karate. So I have a lot of body awareness. <laughs> hey, no, I'm all for um like like I don't know too many people that are taking time out of their day to just set up the hoops and go practice in their own time. Like I want more people doing that. That's awesome. I'm. Like, after you and I are done, I'm going to probably, oh, no, my team's going to yell at me because I'm in a knee brace. Maybe when I'm healthy, I will give that a try. Just... You, the hand the handwork, you don't need to be able to, you can just stand there in place and just practice the handwork. The handwork is really the... And the I don't know. I feel like I'm going to peanut the crap out of that qualifiable. And, and what I mean by that is we had a cornerback for the Bears called Charles Tillman. Oh, AKA the peanut punch. Yep. Oh yeah, I am peanut punching the crap out of that quaffle if it's just tucked in. It's it's it doesn't seem like the most like secure. It's illegal to but... it's illegal to to punch a ball out though in Quidditch. It's a yellow card. Is it really? Yes, to to wind up and then punch the ball out is illegal. It's a yellow card. Oh well, I'm just gonna grab it then. Well, yes, like... but that's that's why you practice doing it so that it happens smoothly as you're on the move, and then as they come in. You tuck the ball into the hand that's farther away from them and hold the broom, and then your hand that's closer to them, you can deflect their tackle. And since you're on the move, the, you can escape them at that point. There's only one more, there's one critical moment where they're, you're within their grasp, and if you prevent them from grabbing you in that moment, then you're free. So you're definitely using your outsider sport knowledge and skills to your, your advantage there. I, <laughs> I can't too many people that have your depth in that regard yeah the actual the best practice for that move is not actually from shotokan it's from um, wing chun which is a chinese kung fu that i learned from a friend of mine 
where we did a practice called sticky hands, where basically you put your wrists on your opponent's wrists and you just stand there and you try and push each other, try to push each other's chest. And by you pushing them and your wrist on their wrist, deflecting their moves at the same time, you'd kind of develop this energy sensation of when your hand is on their arm, you can feel not just their arm, but their whole body. If you do it right. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Sounds like some Naruto type stuff. Getting into your chakras. (laughs) Just a little bit. That's (laughs) awesome. That actually transitions into another thing I wanted to talk about. You said you had some insights from other sports, things that you can bring from other sports into Quidditch. I just wanted to see what what sort of things you had in in mind. Oh, man. Tackling's rough in this sport. (laughs) It really is. Rough in a sense that not a lot of people really know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm an expert at tackling. I'm just going to say that I was your your atypical Caucasian white kid that grew up in the suburbs of Chicago and played football instead of soccer. Like, that's just how I was raised. I was playing football since I was five. Yeah. And what's football? There's tackling. Um, and, like, they're – there definitely needs to be some clinics on tackling. Um, and I kind of touched on this earlier, like with one with choppy feet, mm-hmm. set your feet, set a base. Like you have more power in the lower body and a better chance at wrapping someone up. If you have a firm base, instead of if you're already in motion, you want to talk science and kinetic energy yeah. You have a solid base and more strength and better composure if you both your feet are planted on the floor before you you go to tackle. Mm-hmm. Not not while you're you're running full speed at someone. Um the other thing is to the arm placement. Now I'm left-handed. So I I like to think I'm pretty okay at tackling, not because I'm left-handed, but just because of my experience in football. But it's an issue in Quidditch. I need to wrap up with my right arm a lot more than I care to Mm. just because of the opponents that I'm going up against too. In football, you're taught to put your body across the body of your opponent with your head up, put your head on the ball. I can't do that too well if I'm only allowed to wrap up with one arm right. and that being my left hand. Um, you, um, I mean, I guess it just really depends on what your intent is. If you're just trying to slow them down, I don't know if it matters what arm you're going to use um, as long as you got a solid base until you get some help. Now, if you're trying to prevent a pass, you and they're a right-handed quaffled person that's going to throw with their right hand, you may want to get your left hand on that arm and wrap up on the, that arm. Now, if you are one-on-one with a dude that is twice your size and you're 100 pounds soaking wet, you're not slowing them down. You're not going to wrap them up. But what can you do? You can at least get in their way. Don't pull the jersey. That'll get you a card. But you can at least bring them down with you to a certain degree. I have seen non-male um, quaffle handlers take down dudes three times their size. I'm exaggerating completely. I'm gonna I'm gonna put her out there. Kenny Kennedy Murphy from Lumos Quidge in Chicago. Yeah, 
She's 100 pounds soaking wet. She is not a big athlete. But she is ferocious. She is fierce. And she will wrap up and tackle anyone out there, guy, girl, or otherwise. Nice. She gets in their, she gets in their way. That, like, that, that's the hugest part about just, like, wrapping up and, like, tackling. It, just get in their way. And if you have your feet set, you got a good foundation, and you either have them wrapped up or their arm wrapped up, like, Nine times out of ten, that quaffle person isn't used to that kind of contact. They're going to mess something up. How many turnovers have you seen where if you applied some pressure, they botched the quaffle over the hoops or they they bobbled it because you got a hand on the ball and you just kind of put your hand or your head there? Hmm. Sometimes you get lucky. Like we definitely need chasers being a little bit more in your face. Yeah, that makes sense. Definitely. I know that, uh, then that's a lot of that's mental. It's just, uh, not having the exposure to contact and shying away from it naturally because, you know, contact is inherently scary inherently break things in your body. So we have to kind of find an override for your self-preservation to some degree in order until you get used to it. Oh, don't get me wrong. There's, there's definitely a, difference between getting in their way and making contact from being stupid um there's definitely been some times like yeah i probably shouldn't have gone against this guy head on (laughs) Uh, this dude's built like a house Um, (laughs) so like you you need to decide like what are you actually able to do in this moment and like it's it's that balance of um sacrifice your body versus medical bills suck yeah Uh, (laughs) true um i'm I'm gonna give a i gotta find i gotta find it if anyone is looking for a good non-male athlete putting a hit on someone i encourage you all to check out the hawkeyes from iowa's um facebook page they got a player let me maybe look at my notes here Paige Nellen. Nalen? Yeah. N-A-L-L-E-N. Um, let's see. I think she's number 26 for their team. Like, they got a lot of stellar non-male athletes on that team, but she put a hit on one of the Marquette players. It was it was phenomenal to watch. They got a video of it too. Like like watch that. That sounds good. Shout out to was it Paige Nellen? Nellen? Na- yeah, something like that. Nellen, Nellen. Sorry, we got your name wrong, Paige, but you're awesome. <laughs> that's yeah. I think um, yeah, that's one thing that that others that I know that uh, people from other sports often bring in something. I know that there's uh, but Beth Peebler plays rugby now. I think she actually switched over from. Well, I don't know, maybe she used to play rugby too, but she. Switch over to rugby, and you know there's a lot of rugby. rugby, a lot of tackling there. <laughs> oh, man. I've had half a mind to go to some of these local Chicago rugby tournaments that have the women's league. Like, hey, y'all want to play some Quidditch? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely would be a good source of recruitment. <laughs> Potentially, Ooh, I'm gonna give you another name, Max Jolly from Ball State. That he's not a big guy, but he can wrap up. Uh-huh. Like. 
I, I don't know what his experience outside of Quidditch is, but like he he does the job, mm-hmm. does it better than most, and he only has one arm. He only has one arm. Like in U.S. Quidditch, sorry, let me rephrase that. <laughs> I I hate USQ Quidditch tackling rules. I'm sorry, I'm just gonna throw that out there. Like some of my best tackling came from MLQ, and then we go back to USQ, and it's like I'm I'm getting carded for jersey oh, pulls yeah. and other things, and it's. Well, that's my fault, but bring to our tackling. Please. I know. I, I do hope it comes over. Um, that would be nice. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know what? Let me say, as a beater, um, I, I, I trained with the Soldados this summer in MLQ. As a beater, to arm tackling is hilarious um, because you used to have to kind of decide whether to go for the ball or to put hands on them. And now you can do both at the same time. And it's really all, if you know what you're doing, it's all over for the opponent beater if they let you get that close. It's pretty hilarious. Oh, man. That... I definitely wrecked a few people in practice. <laughs> and that's that's the thing. Like, tackling is, I mean, Quidditch is still a young sport, but, like, tackling yeah. is still a very, like, like, newer concept that people are actually, like, paying attention to a little bit more. So. Yeah. There's going to be, I think, a few years for, like, people to, like, take full advantage of the inexperience. Potentially. It's already come a long way, though. Quidditch is definitely a much more of a sport now and less of a game than it used to be. It's part of why they've regulated the tackling so much, because originally, if I recall correctly, there were basically no tackling rules in the early Quidditch. And you'd have these girls just wrap their entire body around a big guy's leg. Just broom and all, just just hanging off it like a koala bear. So, <laughs> uh, no, nope. and then like, the opposite. You just got full grown dudes taking it to like non male athletes that size. Like that, that's not okay either. Yeah, that's yeah. I, whenever a head referee, I always tell my beater ARs, uh, my beater refs to watch very carefully for that sort of play, where because that's how you have a big guy running at a little girl. She beats him, and then he plows into her, and you know, then that's that sort of thing motivates girls to not come back to playing Quidditch again, and that's super illegal. <laughs> Quidditch is a contact sport, and, and it's made for both, um, made for all, and but it's stuff like that that raises concern. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Do you got any other contributions from other sports? Just quick fire things from other sports that can help better you at Quidditch. Trying to find the right way to phrase this. Um, But like other sports use the same language. Um, Disguising your intentions is how I'm going to phrase it. Sometimes other sports call it cheating. So, like, in volleyball, if you anticipate the server not being a strong server, you're going to cheat your your back row up a little bit to cover the short serve. Yeah. Or if you're free safety in football and you you anticipate run, you might cheat up a little bit and, like, get ready to blitz the shit out of those guys. Right. So that's what I mean by like disguising your tensions or like, uh, like cheating up on the play. I've I've done it a few times at keeper. Sometimes it's worked out really well. Sometimes it's backfired. 
it goes back to everything else that we've talked about as far as like field awareness and anticipation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But like some, but the offense is also paying attention. And one of the things I've, I've liked to do is I like to take myself off the hoops a little bit. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes I'll like step off and like, maybe like go a little bit behind the hoops and like maybe guard the deeper pass a little bit. I'm not fully there. I'm like maybe a f- couple feet off the hoops, but I'm behind them. Mm. Maybe there's really good defensive pressure up front from the chasers. Maybe we have bludger control. There isn't that much of an imminent threat of the guy driving right now. Mm-hmm. So what are their options? They're they're going to work with their beaters to maybe try and get control. They might drive, but there's bludgers there. There's a defensive chaser hopefully there to get in their way i don't need to be right there that second maybe they feel pressured and then like they make a long deep pass and maybe maybe they're really good at that maybe they're that one chaser that can get that pass down there if i have an opportunity to pick that off i'm gonna take it most definitely if it's if it's the like a good setup or like that's something we need right now setters instead of setting up your offense you do a little tip right over the net Mm-hmm. It's a it's a beautiful thing. Like beaters do the same thing. Maybe they don't have bludger control, but they got one of them, and then they hit the quaffle handler at the top of the key, and that just causes all sorts of chaos because they're not expecting that. It's good to have a system, have a plan, but throw a couple of wrenches into what they perceive is your plan, and like that adds an, an extra element of like keeping them on their toes and forcing them to be honest about everything. Makes sense. Yeah. I definitely think that, uh, and and part of that, then it's like spy versus spy where there's constantly something new because then the offense sees the defense cheating and they realize, Oh, I they're on to us. And so like, well, let's try and do something that they're not expecting so then the defense in turn turns into a game of chess, which, you know, where you just have to, both sides are looking ahead multiple, multiple steps based on what your body language is. And that's a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the most intelligent and in players in sports are especially on defense are often called instinctive. They don't really say that they're intelligent, even though they are, they say they're instinctive because it's, it's sorting out what information is false flag and what is not when you're reading an offense. Cause the offense in football, at least has the luxury of time to set up and change their formation and the defense has to react. Mm-hmm. So yeah, building those. And then that comes with experience, I think, but maybe also willing, willfully putting your mind into your opponent's mind to, to try and read them is something that you can develop with film study and talking it through and, just getting a lot of game reps, so. And you don't need to be good at Quidditch to read people or read offenses or defense. You don't even need to play sports. You just need to be able to see things develop and anticipate people's behavior. You can do that at anything that that it calls for it. Yeah, there's definitely a, that's true. It's definitely a gift to be able to read people's, you know, read people's mental state. It seems a little, a little cliche to say read their minds because you can't actually do that, but you can read their bodies, and some people can do that better than others. I, as an autistic person, am notoriously terrible at reading 
what people's thoughts and feelings are, but I'm very good at reading what the direction of the momentum is. So, uh, oh yeah, look at their hips. Yep, uh, hips don't lie. Shakira played played Chaser <laughs> really well. Oh, Shakira's <laughs> wonderful. Yes, hips don't lie. I uh, I remember I was playing TSL. I think it was a couple of years. I think it was not. I think it was last summer, not the most recent one. I was a keeper, and Dallas was the Dallas team was fast breaking on our hoops. It was literally just the chaser with the ball and another chaser running at me, kind of like the drill I described. So I set myself up defensively, put my arm up, and like mentally in my head, I'm like, "All right, I'm going to make this tackle. This guy's bigger than me, but I'm going to make this tackle." So I set all my body language to that, except I kind of put a lot of energy into my left foot because I had the feeling he might have passed to the person, the other chaser, when I got close. And sure enough. He came into range and he passed it. It was kind of a little bit of a lob, and I'd already planted my left foot so heavily that I was able to launch off it and got there to the receiver just as he got the quaffle. And I basically body slammed him and then ripped the quaffle out of his out of his hand <laughs> and uh, just took the ball away from him and got the whole team cheering. But that was fun. Um, keepers can make highlight plays too. <laughs> Most definitely. <laughs> yeah. All right. So do you have any uh, closing uh, wrap-it-up kind of thoughts? I think we've got a, got a good time here looking at the time. Okay. Um, I think people just, like, if you're going to get into keeping, it's keep keep in mind, <laughs> puns, uh-huh. uh, uh, <laughs> uh, it's a lot more than just guarding the hoops. It's it's everything that you and I talked about previously and a lot more. And Quidditch is still a very young sport that it's developing. And I encourage folks that are going to get into the keeper position to do your homework of what's going on right now and be innovative. See, see what more can be added to the keeper position outside of what's already been done. And like, it's a lot of fun. Not gonna lie. Yeah. Like, to to have that green headband on and be the be the one different one for eighteen minutes, kind of fun. Yeah. If you listen to any of the recent Eighth Man episodes, they're really typing up the two-two zone that a lot of teams are running now. And that's uh, I don't know if you have know much about the two-two zone. I don't know if you guys run it um, in Chicago or or Indianapolis. You're definitely seeing it a lot more for sure. Yeah. Um, and at, that, I think that puts as much pressure on the keeper, if not more, because now you have to manage someone else who's also in your territory at the same time, working together, splitting it, or, you know, how you divide that up is probably requires a lot of communication to do effectively. Sorry about that. Um, no problem. I had a text message. No worries. But I'm here. Oh, there's a cat. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't know. but I think 2-2 zone is still kind of new. But uh, I think that there's, you know, it, it seems to me like the initial thought might be that it would uh, take pressure off of the keeper. But I don't know that that's true because I think the keeper has to, the keeper and the other chaser at the hoops have to have good communication as to who's going to, you know, make what kind of moves and rotate as the offense probes, works around, tries to find their attack. At its base, at its base level with bludger control, 
a keeper doesn't have to do a whole lot of work, but that's that's the issue. You get comfortable with that with bludger control. Chasers are helping with the the defense and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There, it needs to be. It needs to be more than, or let me rephrase. Like people need to understand, it's more than just sitting back and chilling and waiting for things to happen. You can make things happen out of that two-two zone, and I, I see the trend that people are gonna adapt to it and like use it or like work around it. And I don't think it's hit the mid Midwest that much. Um, I think more teams should definitely develop it into their tool toolbox, so to speak. Mm. I don't think everyone's gonna use it the way that it needs to up front. Um, pe- I think a lot of people are just gonna see it as like, okay, I just have to sit back and chill a little bit more. There, there needs to be extra layers, extra levels too. Okay, now this part of it fell off. What do we do now? Is it different with bludger or without bludger control? It, it, it goes back to everything else, alignments roles, rating the offense, like is a 2-2 zone a one-stop shop for everything? I I don't know. I, I I think there's ways to score off of it that would make make it not necessary. You, you need to be able to adjust your defense regardless of how good the 2-2 zone has um, been in recent experiences. Does like um, – in football, the wildcat is heavily used in college football. You get away with that because of inexperienced college teams and like mm-hmm. a desire to run up the score in college sports. You see it in NFL teams. You don't see it as much. But what's dominating offenses right now in football, it's, a, it's still a pass-heavy kind of like offense. You have the, you have the wildcat in your repertoire. You have a run game in your repertoire. There's maybe only a few teams right now that have a decent enough running back to where you 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 run first and then you play defense, run the clock. But again, that's all aligned with the system that they have planned. Mm-hmm. The 2-2 zone, if you're going to run it, I think should also complement your offense and your playing style. What does a 2-2 zone do for you offensively? I I think in Quidditch, the two and two go very hand in hand. Like a lot of a lot of the, the experience I've gotten recently with Quidditch is you don't score just to score. Sometimes you score to get qual- get bludger control. Hmm. And sometimes that that's better. Um that's just my impression of like the two two zone being integrated more to teams right now there there's the basic package and then there's teams that are going to utilize it to its fullest extent yeah definitely i uh that definitely makes sense i think yeah any team is i think ultimately any alignment is going to be most successful based on the personnel you have i think a team that runs a traditional or you know male female beater set is going to use different alignments than a team that runs a lot or almost exclusively two male beater sets and it depends on the nature of your chasers are they are they slow-footed are they quick-footed are they fast you know are they you know let all of that goes into deciding how to design your defense and reacting to the opponent so um just thought i'd throw that one out there just to to think about it but yeah that definitely ultimately always comes down to the personnel because it's sport the human it's a human experience 
I, I like the way you phrased that there. You, you, I'm just going to elaborate on that. You can't, you got to tailor what's out there to your team's skill set. Hmm. Okay, everyone's running a 2 2. Is your team designed for a 2 2? Do you have the pieces you need to make it run efficiently? Right. Maybe your team's strictly a better man defense or like a, a, another type of zone defense. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you, you see that in coaches and other sports. They try to force a, a play. There's a difference between having certain expectations to raise the level of your, um, your team's talents and abilities versus forcing a square peg into a circle hole. Yeah, for sure. Um, there's just some teams that are going to be designed to do things a certain way. Um, like right, like right now, Chicago United is predominantly a drive heavy kind of offense. And that's like what we've known for years. And we're pretty good in transition. We're trying to incorporate a little bit more pass passing into our offense, but it's, it's not what we're known for. It's not what's worked. It's not something we've practiced heavily. Um, it's something that could be incorporated, but right now that's not a thing as much as we'd like it to be. Hmm. Yeah. And that's part of the fun of such a young sport where it's still growing and developing. We're still adding new people who are coming already fully formed into the sport rather than having played it most of their life. So it's, it makes the journey that much more interesting. Quidditch is very interesting. I, I love everything about it. <laughs> yep. Uh, that's why we're here recording. Uh, speaking of which, I feel like uh, feel like this is a good place to end our conversation for today, but I want to thank you again for coming on and talking some, talking some ball. Dude, this was awesome. I would do this again in a heartbeat if you ever wanted to hear my voice again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love for talking Quidditch. We, we want more people talking about Quidditch. Well, good. I'm uh, I'm glad uh, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I did too. Maybe uh, maybe when you guys get your new podcast going, I can come on as a guest for that. Do a little home and home. <laughs> Hell yeah! We just got to figure out how to freaking do it. It's a lot of work. This this podcasting business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah, that, that a little bit. And uh, so I'm gonna go ahead and sign off here uh, again. Thanks to Scotty for. Uh, talking with me about Quidditch and thanks to my audience for making it all the way through the podcast Uh, signing off uh, for myself and Scott Ryan this is the How to Play Quidditch podcast sweet thank you to stop recording how are you feeling so far I'm pretty good I've had about two and a half five hour energy today so that's 12 and a half hours of energy <laughs> that's definitely not how that works <laughs> i i'm a i'm a counselor not a math major 